Section 24 of Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Tomko. Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 2, by Thomas Stevens, Chapter 13, Roundabout to India, Part 1. Baku looks the inartistic, business-like place it is, occupying the base of brown, verdureless hills. Scarcely a green thing is visible to relieve the dull, drab aspect roundabout, and only the scant vegetation of a few gardens relieves the city a trifle itself. To the left of the city, the slopes of one hill are dotted with neatly kept Christian cemeteries, and the slopes of another display the disorderly multitude of tombstones characteristic of the graveyards of Islam. On the right are seen numbers of big iron petroleum tanks, similar to those in the oil regions of Pennsylvania. Numbers of petroleum schooners are riding at anchor in the harbor, and two or three small steamers are moored to the dock. Our steamer moves up alongside a stout wooden wharf. The gangplank is ran out, and the passengers permitted to file ashore. A cordon of police prevents them passing down the wharf, while custom house officers examine their baggage. We are, of course, merely in transit through the country. More than that, the Russian authorities seem anxious, for some reason, to make a very favorable impression upon us two Central Asian travelers. So a special officer comes aboard, takes our passports, and with an excessive show of politeness refuses to take more than a mere formal glance at our traps. A horde of ragamuffin porters struggle desperately for the privilege of carrying the passengers' baggage. Poor, half-starred wretches, they seem, reminding me, in their rags and struggles, of desperate curs quarreling savagely over a bone. American porters strive for passengers' baggage for the sake of making money. With these Russians, it seems more like a fierce resolve to obtain the wherewithal to keep away starvation. Burly policemen, armed with swords, like the gendarmerie of France, and in blue uniforms, assail the wretched porters and strike them brutally in the face, or kick them in the stomach, showing no more consideration than if they were maltreating the merest curs such brutality on the one hand and abject servility and human degradation on the other is to be seen only in the land of the Tsar. servility it is true exists everywhere in asia but only in russia does one find the other extreme of coarse brutality constantly gloating over it and abusing it our stay in baku is limited to a few hours we are to take the train for tiflis the same afternoon as we land at two o'clock, so can spare no time to see much of the city or of the oil refineries. Summoning one of the swarm of drosky drivers that beset the exit from the wharf, we are soon tearing over the Belgian blocks to the Hotel de l'Europe. The Russian drosky driver, whether in Baku or in Moscow, seems incapable of driving at a moderate pace. Over rough streets or smooth, he plies the cruel whip shouts vile epithets at his half-wild steed, and rattles along at a furious pace. Baku is the first Europeanized city, either R, or I have been in for many months. 
the rows of shops the saloons drug stores barber shops and above all the hotels how we appreciated all after the bazaars and wretched serais of persia we patronize a barber shop and find the tonsorial accommodations equal in every respect to those of america one of the chairs is occupied by a cossack officer he is the biggest dandy in the way of a cossack we have yet seen scarce had we thought it possible that one of these hardy warriors of the caucasus could blossom forth in the make-up that bursts upon our astonished vision in this baku barber chair the top boots he wears are the shiniest of patent leather from knee to toe lemon-colored silk or satin is the material of the long gown-like coat that distinguishes the cossack from all others his hair is parted in the middle to a hair and smoothed carefully with perfumed pomade his moustache is twirled and waxed his face powdered and eyebrows penciled a silver-jointed belt richly chased encircles his waist and the regulation row of cartridge pockets across his breast are of the same material he wears a short sword the hilt and scabbard of which display the elaborate wealth of ornament affected by the circassians during the forenoon we take a stroll about the city afoot but the wind is high and clouds of dust sweep down the streets a persian in gown and turban steps quietly up behind us in a quiet street and asks if we are molas we know his little game however and gruffly order him off the houses of baku are mostly of rock and severely simple in architecture they look like prisons and warehouses mostly massive and gloomy everywhere everywhere hovers the shadow of the police one seems to breathe dark suspicion and mistrust in the very air the people in the civil walks of life all look like whipped curs they wear the expression of people brooding over some deep sorrow the crape of dead liberty seems to be hanging on every doorknob nobody seems capable of smiling one would think the shadow of some great calamity is hanging gloomily over the city nihilism and discontent run riot in the cities of the caucasus government spies and secret police are everywhere and the people on the streets betray their knowledge of the fact by talking little and always in guarded tones our stay at the hotel is but a few hours but eleven domestics range themselves in a row to wait upon our departure and to smirk and extend their palms for tips as we prepare to go no country under the sun save the caucasus could thus muster eleven expectant menials on the strength of one meal served and but three hours actual occupation of our rooms another wild jehu drives us to the station of the titlis and baku railway and he loses a wheel and upsets us into the street on the way the station is a stone building strong enough almost for a fort military uniforms adorn every employee from the supercilious station-master to the ill-paid wretch that handles our baggage mine is the first bicycle the tiflis and baku railroad has ever carried having no precedent to govern themselves by and withal ever eager to fleece and overcharge the railway officials charge double rates for it that is twice as much as an ordinary package of the same weight no baggage is carried free on the Tiflis and Baku Railroad, except what one takes with him in the passenger coach. The cars are a compromise between the American style and those of England. They are divided into several compartments. 
but the partitions have openings that enable one to pass from end to end of the car. The doors are in the end compartments, but lead out of the side, there being no platform outside nor communication between the cars. The seats are upholstered in gray plush and are provided with sliding extensions for sleeping at night. Overhead is a second tier of berths unfolds for sleeping. No curtains are employed. The arrangements are only intended for stretching oneself out without undressing. The engines employed on the Tiflis and Baku railway are without coal tenders. They burn the residue of petroleum, which is fed to the flames in the form of spray by an atomizer. A small tank above the furnace holds the liquid, and a pipe feeds it automatically to the firebox. The result of this excellent arrangement is spontaneous conversion into flame, a uniformly hot fire, cleanliness aboard the engine, a total absence of cinders, and almost an absence of smoke. The absence of a tender gives the engine a peculiar bobtailed appearance to the unaccustomed eye. The speed of our train is about twenty miles an hour, and it starts from Baku an hour behind the advertised time. For the first few miles, unfenced fields of ripe wheat characterize the landscape, and a total absence of trees gives the country a dreary aspect. The day is Sunday, but peasants, ragged and more wretched-looking than any seen in Persia, are harvesting grain. The carts they use are most peculiar vehicles, with wheels eight or ten feet in diameter. The tremendous size of the wheels is understood to materially lighten their draft. After a dozen miles, the country develops into barren wastes, as dreary and verdureless as the deserts of Seistan. At intervals of a mile, the train whirls past a solitary stone hut occupied by the family of the watchman or section hand. Sometimes a man stands out and waves a little flag, and sometimes a woman. Whether male or female, the flag signaler is invariably an uncouth bundle of rags. The telegraph poles consist of lengths of worn-out rail, with an upper section of wood on which to fasten the insulators. These make substantial poles enough, but have a makeshift look, and convey the impression of financial weakness to the road. The stations are often quite handsome structures of mingled stone and brickwork. The names are conspicuously exposed in Russian and Persian and Circassian. Beer, wine, and eatables are exposed for sale at a lunch counter, and peddlers vend boiled lobsters, fish, and fruit about the platforms. On the platform of every station hangs a bell with a string attached to the tongue. When almost ready for the train to start, an individual, invested with the dignity of a military cap with a red stripe, jerks this string slowly and solemnly thrice. Half a minute later, another man in a full military uniform blows a shrill whistle. Yet a third warning in the shape of a smart toot from the engine itself, and the train pulls out. Full half the crowd about the stations appear to be in military uniform. The remainder are a heterogeneous company, embracing the modern Russian dandy who affects the latest Parisian fashions the Circassians and Georgians in picturesque attire, and the ever-present ragamuffin Mozhik. At one station we pass an institution peculiarly Russian, a railway prison car conveying convicts eastward. It resembles an ordinary box car with iron grating toward the top. We can see the poor wretches peeking through the bars and the handcuffs on their wrists. 
Outside at either end is a narrow platform where stands, with loaded guns and fixed bayonets, a guard of four soldiers. Once or twice before dark the train stops to replenish the engine's supply of fuel. Elevated iron tanks containing a supply of the liquid fuel take the place of the coal sheds familiar to ourselves. The petroleum is supplied to the smaller tank on the engine through a pipe, as is water to the reservoir. Such villages as we pass are the most unlovely clusters of mud hovels imaginable. Only the people are interesting, and the life of the railway itself. The Circassian peasantry are picturesque in bright colors, and the thin veneering of Western civilization spread over the semi-barbarity of the Russian officials and first-class passengers is an interesting study in itself. We have been promising ourselves a day in Tiflis, the old Georgian capital, and now the headquarters of the Russian army of the Caucasus, which our friends of the French Scientific Party said we would find interesting. We find it both pleasant and interesting, for here are all modern improvements of hotel and street, as well as English telegraph officers, one a former acquaintance at Tehran. Tiflis now claims about 160,000 inhabitants, and is situated quite picturesquely in the narrow valley of the Kerr. The old Georgian quarters still retain their oriental appearance, gabled houses, narrow, crooked streets, and filth. The modernized, or European, portion of the city contains broad streets, rows of shops in which is displayed everything that could be found in any city in Europe, and street railways. These latter were introduced in 1882, and at first met with fierce antagonism from the Drosky drivers, who swarm here as in every city in Russia. These wild Jehus of the Caucasus expected the tram cars to turn out the same as any other vehicle. Four people were killed by collisions the first day. Severe punishment had to be resorted to in order to stop the hostility of the Drosky drivers against the strange innovation. The day is spent in seeing the city and visiting the hot sulfur baths, and in the evening we attend a big Baal mosque in a suburban garden. A regimental band of fifty pieces plays Around the World by order of Prince Nicholas F., who exerts himself to make things pleasant for us in the garden. The famed beauties of Georgia, Circassia, and Mingrelia, masked and costumed, promenade and waltz with Russian officers, and sometimes join Circassian officers in a charming native dance. We spend our promised clay in Tiflis, enjoy it thoroughly, and then proceed to Batum. The Tiflis railway station is a splendid building, with fountains and broad nights of stone terrace leading up to it from the street behind. Our Drosky driver rattles up to the foot of these terraced approaches at 8 a.m. and draws up a steed with an abruptness peculiar to the half-wild Jehus of the Caucasus. The same employee of the Hotel de Londres, who had mysteriously hailed us by name from the platform as our train glided in from Baku the morning before, accompanies us to the depot now. All English travelers in Russia are supposed to be millionaires, all Americans possessed of unlimited wealth. Bearing this in mind, our Russian-Armenian henchman has from first to last been most assiduous in his attentions, paying out of his own pocket the few odd kopecks to porters carrying our luggage up from Drosky to Depot, in order to save us bother. 
The station is crowded with people going away themselves or seeing friends off. As usual, the military overshadows and predominates everything. Between civilians and the wearers of military uniforms, one plainly observes in a Russian Caucasus crowd that no love is lost. The strained relationship between the native population and the military aliens from the north is generally made the more conspicuous by the comparative sociability of the Georgians among themselves and kindred people of the Caucasus. Circassian officers in their picturesque uniforms and beautifully chased swords and pistols mingle sociably with the civilians, and are evidently great favorites but that the blue-coated, white-capped Russians are hated with a bitter, sullen hatred requires no penetrating eye to see. The military brutality that crushed the brave and warlike people of Georgia, Circassia, and Mingrelia, and well-nigh depopulated the country, has left sore wounds that will take the wine and oil of time many a generation to heal completely up. With an inner consciousness of duty well done and services faithfully rendered, our friend from the hotel flicks off our seats in the car with the tail of his long linen duster. Not that they need dusting, but as a gentle reminder of the extraordinary care he has bestowed upon us, in little things as well as in bigger, during our brief acquaintance with him. He dusts them off. That last attentive flick of his coat-tail is the finishing touch of an elaborate retrospective panorama we are expected to conjure up of the valuable services he has rendered us, and for which he is now justly entitled to his reward. The customary three bells are struck, the inevitable military-looking official blows shrilly on his little whistle, and still the train lingers. Lastly, the engine toots, however, and we pull slowly out of Tiflis. The town lies below us to the left. The river Kerr follows us around a bend. The train speeds through deep gravel cuttings, and when we emerge from them, the Georgian capital is no longer visible. Between Baku and Tiflis, the Caucasus Railway runs for the most part through a flat, uninteresting country. Wastes as dreary and desolate as the steppes of central Russia or the deserts of Turkestan sometimes stretched away to the horizon on either side of the track. At other points were gray, verdureless slopes and rocky buttes, or saline mudflats that looked like the old bed of some ancient sea. Occasional oases of life appeared here and there, a few wheat fields and a wretched mud-built village, or a picturesque scene of smoke-browned tents gaily dressed nomads, and grazing flocks and herds. At night we had passed through a grassy steppe, a facsimile of the rolling prairies of the west. Though but the 6th of June, the country was parched, and the grass dried, as it stood, into hay by the heat and drought. We saw at one point a wide sweep of flame that set the darkening sky aglow, and caused the railway rails ahead to gleam. It was a steppe on fire another reproduction of a far western prairie scene. All this had changed as we woke up an hour before reaching Tiflis. The country became green, lovely, and populous in comparison. The people seemed less ragged, poverty-stricken, and wretched. The native women wore garments of brightest red and blue. The men put on more style, with their long Circassian coats and ornamental daggers, than I had yet observed. East of Tiflis, the Caucasus halfway may, roughly speaking, be said to traverse the dreary wastes of an Asiatic country. 
west of it to wind around among the green hills and forest-clad heights of Europe's southeastern extremity. Lovelier and more beautifully green grows the country, and more interesting, too, grow the people and the towns as our train speeds westward toward Batum and the Black Sea coast. Everything about the railway also seems to be more prosperous and better equipped. The improvised telegraph poles of worn-out lengths of rail seen east of Tiflis give place to something more becoming. Sometimes we speed for miles past ordinary cedar poles, procured no doubt from the mountain forests near at hand. Occasionally are stretches of iron poles imported from England, and then poles composed of two iron railway rails clamped together. For much of the way we see the splendidly equipped Indo-European Telegraph Company's line, the finest telegraph line in the world equipped with substantial iron poles throughout and with every insulator covered with an iron cap in countries where the half-civilized natives are wont to do them damage this line runs through the various countries of europe and asia to tehran persia where it joins hands with the british government line to india Following along the valley of the river Kerr, our train is sometimes rattling along up a wild gorge between rugged heights whose sides are bristling with dark coniferous growth, or more precipitous with huge jagged rocks and the variegated vegetation of the Caucasus strewn in wild confusion. Again we emerge upon a peaceful grassy valley, lovely enough to have been the happy valley of Rasalas, and walled in almost completely with forest-clad mountains. Through it, perhaps, there winds a mountain stream, fed by welling springs and hidden rivulets, and on the stream is sure to be a town or village. An old Georgian town it would be, picturesque but dirty, built, too, with an eye to security from attack. One town is particularly noteworthy, not a very large town, but more important, doubtless, in times past than now. Out of the valley there rises a rocky butte, abrupt almost as though it were some monstrous vegetable growth. On the summit of this natural fortress some old Georgian chief had, in the good old days of independence, built a massive castle, and nestling beneath its protecting shadow around the base of the butte is the town, a picturesque town of adobe and wattle walls and quaint red tiles, so intensely verdant is the valley so thickly wooded the dark surrounding mountains so brown the walls so red the tiles and so picturesque the elevated castle that even Kay goes into raptures and calls the picture beautiful the improvement in the russian telegraph line perhaps owes something to its brief association with the invading stranger from england and now among the sublime loveliness of this caucasian switzerland one finds the station houses built with far more pretense to the picturesque than on the barren steppes toward baku and the caspian here is the caucasia of our youthful dreams and the mystic hills and vales whence mingralian princes issued forth to deeds of valor in old romantic tales urchins small mountaineers more picturesquely clad than anything seen in alpine italy even now offer us little baskets of wild strawberries at ten kopecks a basket strawberries they and their little brothers and sisters have gathered this very morning at the foot of the hills the cuisine at the lunch counters embraces fresh trout from neighboring mountain streams caught by vagrant mingralian isaac waltons who bring them in on strings of plaited grass to sell
Humorous scenes sometimes enliven our stops at the stations. The Russian warnings for travelers to seek the train before it is everlastingly too late cover fully a minute of time. First come three raps of a bell suspended on the platform. Afterward, a station employee blows a little whistle, and lastly comes a toot from the engine itself by way of an ultimatum. Once this afternoon, a woman leaves the train to enter the waiting room for something. Just as she is entering, the station man rings the bell. The woman, evidently unaccustomed to railway travel, rushes hastily back to the train. Everybody greets her performance with good-natured merriment. Finding the train not pulling out, and encouraged by some of the passengers, the woman ventures to try it again. As she reaches the waiting room door, the station man blows a shrill blast on his whistle. The woman rushes back as before. Again the people laugh, and again words of encouragement tempt her to venture back again. This time it is the toot of the engine that brings that poor female scurrying back across the platform amid the unsympathetic laughter of her fellow passengers. And this time the train really starts. From this it would appear that too many signals are quite as objectionable at railway stations as not signals enough. Every stoppage at a lunch counter station, or where vendors of things edible come on the platform, gives us opportunity to turn our minds judiciously upon the civilization of our fellow first-class passengers. They present a curious combination of French fashion and polite address, on the one hand, and want of taste and ignorance of civilization's usages on the other. Gentlemen and ladies, dressed in the latest Parisian fashions, stand out on the platform and devour German sausage or dig their teeth into big chunks of yellow cheese with the gusto of half-starved barbarians. We double our engines, our compact, tenderless petroleum-burning engines, at the foot of the Suron Pass. At its base, a stream disappears in an arched cave at the foot of a towering rocky cliff, and I have bethought me since of whether, like Alan Quartermain's subterranean stream, it would, if followed, reveal things heretofore unseen. And so we climb the lovely Suran Pass, rattle down the western slope upon the Black Sea coast, and reach Batum at 11 p.m., as the chief mercantile port of the Caucasus, Batum is an important shipping point. By the famous Berlin Treaty, it was made a free port, but nothing is likely to remain free any length of time upon which the Russian bear has managed to lay his greedy paw. Consequently, Batum is now afflicted with all sorts of commercial taxes and restrictions, peculiar to a protective and autocratic semi-oriental government. Notwithstanding this, however, ships from various European ports crowd its harbor, for not only is it the shipping point of Baku Petroleum, but also the port of entry for much of the Persian and Central Asian importations from Europe. An oil pipeline is seriously contemplated from Baku to replace the iron tank cars now run on the railroad. Big fortifications are under headway to protect the harbor, its strategic importance as a terminus of the Caucasus Railway, and the shipping point for troops and war material making Batum a place of special solicitation on the part of the Russian military authorities. R and I walk around and take a look at the fortification works, as well as one can do this, but no strangers are allowed very near, and we are conscious of close surveillance the whole time we are walking out near the scene of operations. 
a pleasant day in batum and we take passage aboard a messageries maritime steamer for constantinople late at night we depart amid the glare and music of a violent thunderstorm and in the morning wake up in the roadstead of trebizond to fully realize the difference between mock civilization and the genuine article one cannot do better than to transfer from a russian caspian steamer to a messageries maritimes the russian affect french methods and manners in pretty much everything but the thinness and transparency of the varnish becomes very striking in contrast aboard the steamers the scenery along the anatolian coast is striking and lovely in the extreme as we steam along in full view of it all next day it is mountainous the whole distance but the prospect is charmingly variable sometimes the mountains are heavily wooded down to the water's edge and sometimes the slopes are prettily checkered with clearings and cultivation more and more lovely it grows next day as we pass samsoon celebrated throughout the east for chibuk tobacco sinope memorable as a place where the first blow of the crimean war was delivered and on the morning of the third day in Oboli, the town of wines end of section twenty four recording by william tomko